You're listening to Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jan. everyone. Uh, welcome to Screenwriters Need to Hear This. This is Michael Jammin, and uh, Phil is doing some more work today, but I got a special guest star, and uh, he's a he's a producer. He's going to answer a lot. Of, a lot of you want to know how to become a producer. I don't even know what a producer is. We're going to find out, but I'm very happy to have Jim Serpico here. He was, he, listen to his credits, because hold on, pull over if you're in your car. All right. I'm just going to mention some of your credits, Jim, and then I promise I'll give you a chance to talk, or, or not. Uh, so, Executive producer of The Job, a bunch of Comedy Central roasts, Canterbury's Law, a bunch of Dennis Leary specials, Rescue Me, he executive produced, uh, and if you want to, Sirens as well, Benders, you're also the showrunner and, and, and writer, uh, you know, which is the head writer of that, and executive producer, executive producer of Marin, which is how I met him, uh, and then Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, a bunch of other comedy specials. You have a, you're, he, Jim's got a big specialty, is, is, you know, his niche is comedy, and uh I got to say, and I think I told you this, Jim, years ago. I know I did. Um, so cause sometimes people say, like, hey, you know, how do I become a producer? Because the producer is this vague catch-all term. And it can mean it can, a manager could be a producer, a writer could be a producer. But when I honestly, when I think of producer, I, I, producers who do the job, who get their hands dirty, it's, it's Jim Serpico and his partner, Tom Saletti. And I, I, I'm sure I told you this, Jim. We, were, we had a... Well, say hi so people know you're here. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm okay. here. <laughs> Thanks for okay, having me. I'm Mike. doing a lot. I'm doing a lot of talking. <laughs> um, but I want to. I want to kiss your butt for just a second because I, I think it's important people know this. Um, years ago, my partner and I wrote a spec script, and we wanted to get a, a producer attached. We sent it out. We, we had a meeting with a producer who had a production deal, and this person was an ex uh, studio executive. And as part of their compensation, you know. Part of their package was they got a, a deal to be a production deal. So we go meet with them. I don't want to say who it was. And they're excited about the script. And they go, oh, the script's great. You know who will be the perfect star for this? And I and they, they mentioned this actor. And we were like, yes, that he would be perfect for the star. And then this producer said to me, the words that crushed me, the producer said, do you know how to reach them? And I was just like, but that's your job. Like, what do you think you're doing? And the thing is, Jim, if, if it was you, this is what you would have said. You would have said, all right, I'm going to go to this costume store. I'm going to rent a pizza delivery costume. <laughs> I'm going to get a large pie, and I'm going to deliver it to them with the script inside because that's what a producer does. I, I appreciate that. Um, a producer's I, a hustler. Uh, for sh well, some are. Some are. Not, not always required. Mm -hmm. Um. But yeah, I have a lot of thoughts, and I can say a lot about all this. But that's what I Let's would do. I, I like to think right. that I am very resourceful in an honorable way. Um, I have done things like, uh, I forget who was running HBO at the time, but I was, I was shopping a, a cookbook called the Mafia Cookbook with these recipes. And we wanted to do these short films tied around the recipes. And uh, he was based in Los Angeles. It was Bob Cooper, actually. And I had this $300 basket made with Italian pastas and homemade sauce and mozzarella, copies of the cookbook and all this stuff. And I had it delivered to his home on the weekend. And I had never met him. And he called me on the weekend and he, he goes, I've never met you. Uh, I don't really know who you are, but I must say... This was one of the most unbelievable presentations I've ever seen. Right. Uh, right. And then the next time I talked to him, he passed. But at least I, <laughs> I got the look. I got right. the look. But, that's, but I, even when we met on Marin, like you were always very hands-on. Some producers will say, okay, and then they pass it off. They, they order someone else to do it. This is what we need to do. Now you do it. You pick up the phone and you do it. Like you're always very hands-on. Like I will get this done. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, for better or for worse, I had to figure out this job kind of on my own um, and find mentors along the way that would show me, like, what to do as a producer. Um, and then what do they teach you? Well, so, so going back, you got to understand, like, I, I started representing comedians, which is a way into producing uh, for a lot of people, I guess, but 
also that I didn't learn from anyone. Um, and how did you get into that then? I was an assistant. Okay. This, this relates to what you were saying. V yeah. Right from the very, very beginning. I graduated college. I got a job at a music booking agency. And um, I was an assistant. You know, what are, what are the jobs? But getting an assistant job is one of the best things you can do. Uh, if you want to break into show business, you know, whether you're an assistant at a management company, an agency, a writer's right. assistant, whatever. I always I believe in that. And I also believe in the philosophy. While you're there, you don't have to worry that this isn't the exact thing I want to do. The person I'm assisting doesn't have the job I want to have. So then I'm going to be miserable every day. No, instead, you should still right. do the best job you can because that person as well as the others around are going to really like you and root for you and help you in some way. But right. I was an assistant at a music booking agency that had Wilson Pickett, Bo Diddley, the village people, Ronnie Spector, uh, you know, these oldies groups. Um, but they were credible people. And I said, I want to, I want to be a booking agent. Like who, you know, and I was vocal about it. It was a small enough company. I could have those conversations with the owners and they gave me three States <laughs> To appease me and shut me up. They said, uh, all right, you want to be a booking agent? We're giving you Bo Diddley and Wilson Pickett. You, you have North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wyoming. Good luck. <laughs> Three worst. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And this was about 90, 90, 1990, 91. And I literally would go and I went to the bookstore. I got this book on blues clubs. And I would call information. And in 1990, when you dialed information, you would get a local operator. Mm -hmm. And I literally would have conversations and say, you, I represent Bo Diddley. And they'd be like, what? And I'd right. be like, yeah, do you have any ideas on who I could call to try to book Bo Diddley? And right. I had no leads on where to book him. And I would call hotels and I would call bars. And I came up with a list of people and they were like, are you telling me for real you could get Bo Diddley here? And I'd be like, yeah, I could get Bo Diddley here. And um, I remember we, we got a booking for him, and my bosses were like, we got to get the 50% deposit wired because I'd never heard of this place. Is it real? And we ended up booking a tour for Bo Diddley in those three states. Wow. And, uh, and I had never met Bo at the time, and about six months later I met him, and he goes, you're the motherfucker that booked me in North Dakota, <laughs> South, South Dakota in February? You know how fucking cold it is in February? <laughs> All right. But he was joking and he was cool about it, but it was me being resourceful. Right. Uh, and then my next step was booking comedians, not in those states, but in colleges. And I went to NACA convention. And Wait, what is that? That's the college convention, right? What is it? Yeah. I don't even remember. It's like the, I don't even remember what it, it's something college association. It's like all the people who run student activities at the colleges around the country. There's one big right. national convention. Everyone, all the big players in college go, and then they break off into these regional conventions. So I went, the first one I ever went to was the big one, and I was 22. I was barely older than the college kids, and um, I met these agents who had been in the business. They were five years older than me, and they were, like, to me, they were big shots because they worked at places like William Morris and APA. Mm -hmm. But really, within the company, they were, like, it wasn't the, the most prestigious thing to, to be known for as an agent. It's, all right, you're going to handle these college kids, right? But to me, they were big agents at big agencies, and they, they were selling people like Adam Sandler, uh, hmm. whatever. Anyone who's anyone as a stand-up comedian would want college gigs because they would pay $5,000 to 50000 a gig. So right. I, I became friends with some of the agents who were there. We would hang out. We would have a couple beers. I actually threw a party in my hotel room for the student buyers, and I had the agents there, and I filled up my bathtub with beer. And mm -hmm. I was networking with people. And because they had fun, they would come down to my booth and book these comedians and magicians that I was selling for colleges. And those agents, specifically at APA, said, we are not going to these other 12 conventions. You are. Why don't you handle our comedians for us and be a middle agent? And your company will get 10%. Our company will get 10%. So that's what I did. And one right. of those clients was Adam Sandler. 
And I started booking Adam on college shows around the tri-state area. And then I would drive Adam to the gigs that I booked. And that's when I got hooked on comedy and, and realizing that comedy and representing and working with comedians was a business. Um, you know, because I had this personal relationship with the guy who was going on stage that night. And he seemed to appreciate the fact that I was getting him these gigs for over 20000 a night. Right. And uh, he would then... Is this before Saturday Night Live? This was right at, right during it. Okay. D- during it. Um, but I remember he had Chris Farley call me from the set of Saturday Night Live, trying to convince me to take him on as a client to book him at colleges. Um, and then I went into full-on comedy representation at a small management company based on that. Why interest. would you need to be convinced of that, though? Like, what, what Did you say yes or no? I did, but it never ended up working out. I think he was just like... You know who I am. I don't know if you know who I am. I do this guy, the Bears. And he starts doing the impression of, <laughs> of the thing he's doing. And at the time, I was also at a photo shoot with someone who became a client and ultimately my partner, Dennis Leary. That's when that call happened. Um, right. Yeah, and then Dennis and I bonded. And he. I went on the road with Dennis as a tour manager for six months with him and his band. And we became close. He started to take off. He had an opportunity based on his heat to start a production company. Right. He saw something in me to ask me to do it and run it for him. I had no experience. Yeah, you had no experience in that. Yeah. I think he just trusted me, and none of us really knew what it was or what it meant. Right. Uh, he, he, he never had a tremendous trust in the typical Hollywood person, so I think, I think he felt better with kind of like a young person who we believed would be honorable, uh, not rob him, and look out for him. And look out for his business, yeah. And and while he was still surrounded by these other experts, you know, because, you know, at that point, um, you know, he still had agents at the big agencies. But were you intimidated when you were in those early meetings with agents and other writers and producers and, you know, you're brand new? Yes and no. I think there's certain people that get off on trying to control the room and make people like me feel intimidated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's weird because on one level, I'm a very quiet, shy person. But in another, there's another part of me that's very confident. Um, and like I could read the room and I could be tough when I have to be tough. And I don't know. I just kind of fit in. And, and the other thing that happened was pivotal moment in my career was Dennis did a movie and we got to see the movie before it came out it was me his agent and somebody else and at this point you're working in the capacity of his basically you're running his production company right but also handling all his business I was his de facto manager okay um but my role uh was was officially you know, partner in the production company. Right. Um, and and I saw the movie and I said, this movie is not good. This is going to be a problem. And the agent said he doesn't know what he's talking about and said a lot of good things. Right. And the movie came out and did not do well. Right. And there was forever a bond and trust. And I, and I didn't do it for that reason. I was just telling the truth of what I felt about the movie. And I wasn't trained. By the way, I have no training in writing or I didn't go to school for movie and film production or development. Um, I went to school for music. But did you, when you said it was no good, like what were you hoping to happen from that? Well, you got to immediately get into defensive mode and figure out what our stance is going to be, how much press are we going to do? Oh, okay. You know, what are we going to say to people? Your name's all over this. <laughs> well, did he, but he didn't write it. He just, he was just starring in it. He did write it. No. <laughs> <laughs> and you had the boss to tell him it was no good. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you he, want that? If, seriously. Um, well, at the script stage, but I don't, at that point, what are you going to do? Other than, I guess, recut it. I mean, you can't reshoot it. Oh, no. There was not, no, the movie was coming out, man. There was nothing. Yeah. But you do have to, there's a whole nother part of this when you're representing talent is like, what is our position? 
when they're asking us, they, the the movie studios or whoever's putting up the money is going to ask the talent to promote the shit out of the project, right? right? Because that's all they have. It's very hard to get free press unless it's amazing. So they're gonna push and push and push. Yeah. You have to be smart and pick your shots. Like if you know it's a dog, you can't say yes to all that stuff. But you're distancing. You're basically asking him to distance himself from his own project. Correct. <laughs> but is there any way to do that? If you, if, if you, I mean, like, People how can do you it all the time? Say, I had nothing to do with this. I don't know what happened. No, you, you don't. You just don't do interviews certain you months. Just, okay. Okay. You know? and you just, and then you just lick your wounds and and then figure out your next plan. I mean, yeah. And and long story short, our next plan was to go into the TV business. <laughs> right. Right. And then what so what what show came after that? What what show came next? So the first all right. I mean, the truth is we took a deal to develop television early on without the intention of ever developing television. Right. Why? Because it was the money. We had the rent paid, we had salaries mm. paid, we we would buy time to develop new movies. Um Okay, so you were going to put it towards movies, but not TV. That's all. But the deal was for television. <laughs> <laughs> but then, but why? So, what was your plan then? If you weren't going to do, t- like, what were, what did he want to concentrate on? Movies and and guest stars or something? See what happens. We'll buy in two years. We'll see what happens. Right. You know, and and at that point, uh, the deal was with DreamWorks, and Jeffrey Katzenberg was involved, and he had, we flew to L.A. to meet Jeffrey and. Uh, it was Dan McDermott, Justin Falvey, Dower Frank at the time. Yep. Uh, these are all big executives. Yeah. Uh, Daryl and Justin still run DreamWorks Television today. Yep. Um, they were some of my first friends in the business. And uh, we, we had some conversations. Dennis had done a movie, um, a police movie, where he was, I, I don't know, like the third lead or something. And he got really close with one of the police uh, techs. And mm-hmm. always thought it would be a cool idea for a movie or TV show. We had that conversation with Katzenberg. And the next thing, you know, he somehow hooks us up with Peter Tolan. Yeah. And once Peter Tolan's evolved, we're like, well, wait a second, maybe TV. Let's see what this is about. He's a, he's a big shot writer. He's a great writer, Peter Tolan. Um, yeah. Now, I, I know I'm skipping around a little bit, but I... You, because you guys, I should mention, you're New York based, as, you know, as well as that. You, all you guys are New York based. Is that now, do you find that... Yeah. You know, people, Hollywood is in Hollywood. What's that like for you? Oh, me? You have to Personally, re- I, I love it. I love leading a regular non-Hollywood life mm-hmm. and popping in. Uh, and when I say pop in, I, I, I dedicated a lot of my life to knowing as many players in Hollywood or more than the people who live in Hollywood did. So. And how did you do that? But. Well, let's go back one yeah. second. You asked me who, who my mentors were. Yeah. Before we really did that TV show, we set up a couple of independent movies. There was a guy named Bobby Newmeyer who we were partnering on a project that never ended up happening, but he ke- became a really good friend of mine. Uh, he produced the first hit independent movie, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. He, for some reason, every time he came to New York, which was every three months, he and I would go out for lunch or dinner uh, for years. And he would teach me a lot of stuff. And if I ever had a question in the business, he would teach me. Um, Give give me an example of what what he might teach you. uh, Going forward, uh, line producers are amazing. Uh, Do you need to give away... 50% 50% of your business to have one as a partner? No. To have a, to have a line producer? Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. right. Uh, things like, uh, oh, you love this book? Here's what you do. You know, here's you go to this person at this agency or these several people to try to find a writer that's really meaningful. Uh, but right. I'm 25 years old. How could I sell a book? That doesn't matter. As long as you have something they want, you have a good writer. So the other thing that happened was... Um, Around the time of the, the movie I was talking about not doing so well, we rejiggered the team around Dennis professionally. And Dennis, I mean, this, 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 this is the luck part, but it's mm-hmm. also the fact that I was resourceful enough and maybe naive enough and ballsy enough 
I went to L.A. myself and hired a new agency team for Dennis without him being there. And a new lawyer. Did he? Was, did, was he aware of this, that you're doing this? He asked me to. Oh, okay, okay. All right. But I became the point guy now because they, they were like, Jim brought us in. We're working here for Dennis. It's Dennis and Jim, but I was a very important part of the team now. Right. I wasn't just some, like at the other place, I was just some assistant peon. Now I was the guy who hired them to be on the team, and they, already, they, ha- they would get me any meeting whether it was with Dennis for him to be in or not. And I remember within a year and a half of, of working at this production company with no experience, I sold at least one or two projects to Mike DeLuca that were based on books. Right. Um, because the agency and the specific agents at that agency really were trying to help me build my business. Right. Interesting. Interesting. And, and at that point, right. I was like, I could sell anything. I, I wasn't. I, I know it sounds cocky. I, what I really mean is like I have done it already. So why, why, why do? I'm sure I could keep doing this, and I would sell projects. But isn't there an element? Because there's like the produce. There's so much to being a producer. Some of it is selling, and some of it is actually making and doing and being on set. And like, there's more than you know. Well, it, it, that's the on. other thing. And and um, I. Because I didn't learn. So Bobby Newmeyer was a hands-on producer. He did not represent talent. And the beauty of, of learning from a guy like that was, you know, he was teaching me how to produce from the ground up and get the films sold and made because that's what he did without having, without just leveraging talent. So many producers come up through the agencies and the mailrooms. And, and by the way, I'm not shitting on that way of coming up Mm-hmm. or producing. I do think those people deserve producing credits. But we just, whenever we set up a project, we were on the set for the project. And mm-hmm. we, we started to do it so many times, we would learn what that meant. We would go on the location scouts. Um, we would do things that producers generally thought they were above doing. A lot of yeah. producers. Like Bobby Newmeyer would go on the location scouts because he was an independent filmmaker and producer. We would go on the location scouts. And by going on the location scouts and paying attention and just being so involved, we became, we, first of all, we were able to learn every aspect of filmmaking. It was our film school. Like the DP mm-hmm. would talk about why this room is great why mm-hmm. the light's going to look amazing or what we need to do to light it to make it look like the way you know we want why this apartment is not configured correctly uh or right. what th- while this room is amazing there's nowhere to stage all the equipment we can't shoot here it's like everything yep um, i remember and i remember you doing that when we were scouting marin and i was like i was just watching you cuz you were you were that's exactly what you were saying it was like eh, this is this is not yeah, where do we put Video Village here? Where do we? Right. Uh, it's too close to the street. We're gonna get noise. I mean, you know, we were you were dinging places until we found the right place. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, and I that's just what I learned by producing the way I figured out how to produce. And I didn't have a lot of I didn't a lot of these managers that that produce work at management companies with. There's a lot of pressure to earn, and they only mm-hmm. earn based on the commissions their clients are bringing in. And they're so busy doing that uh, that there's, there's not, it's not possible for them to leave the office mm-hmm. for six hours or four hours of your day. I mean, you know, like I would literally – I moved to Los Angeles for three months at a time for three years. I didn't do the fourth season in person. But, you know, like I would be hands-on. Very hands-on. But – and have enough time to try to continue to develop my other projects and and nurture my relationships, mm-hmm. uh, and that's another part of it. Um, and I don't know if you, you want me to keep rambling. No, you're, I think this is all. This is stuff I don't even know. So it's not just my audience; it's me. So please go on. So the other thing that I did when I put together that team for Dennis, and then we had the shows on the air. That one of them was very successful. Uh, and the deal was the the project Rescue Me was financed by Sony Pictures Television. Mm-hmm. We ended up having a, a deal with Sony to develop more television. Mm-hmm. And I would, 
you know, after the first couple seasons of Rescue Me, I would, I really concentrated on building out the rest of the business. And I opened an office in Los Angeles for us. And I would go to LA a week a month, mm -hmm. every month. And I would take meetings with agents, uh, managers, writers, and certain talent. And I, I made sure that over the course of 10 years, I had a personal relationship with anyone that could possibly buy from us. Right, right. Um, I, I also, you know, when we had shows on the air, I d did a lot of work with the people at the studios and the networks um, in all different departments. So like my guest, I have this podcast now, my, it's called Bread for the People, and I, I, I'm a bread maker, uh, but I also obviously still produce television, and I, I have people from the entertainment field on the podcast, and I'm on the podcast next week is the guy who is a market analysis research guru who tests television shows. Mm -hmm. So, like, I would, I would talk to these people, and I would learn from them, um, you know, especially in particular that show, and we talk about it on this coming episode, the testing of the original pilot informed a reshoot that we had to do to the end mm -hmm. of, that, of that pilot. And, you know, that reshoot helped make it become successful. But I always enjoyed meeting people in the business who worked in all different fields and learning from them, and I really dedicated my life to it. And in some ways I would say... And I still do this. Like, I work a lot. You know, I I try to take some time for myself. But I work many hours a day to this day. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'll work from 7 in the morning till 11 at night. Hey, I'll, hey. I'll, I'll, I'll schedule social things, and I'll put that in my day. Um, but I always did that. And I always was willing to travel right. for the job and spend a lot of time away away from my family, but I would do everything I can to be back on the weekends. Right. Interesting. So, yeah, you made your sacrifices. Tell me, I want to talk to you about Marin because that show came about, it was a real low-budget show, and it came about in an interesting way. So tell us about the beginning of that, even before, like before I even, I mean, Seaver got involved. So I had, I had known this manager named Olivia Wingate mm -hmm. a little bit. We didn't know each other too well, actually. I was listening to Marin's podcast. And I believe it was around episode 14, I'm guessing, that he had Judd Apatow on. And around the same time, he had Louis C.K. on. Wow, and this was really right in the beginning, then. This was the beginning. Yeah. And I was blown away by the podcast. And I was like, I wonder if, in my mind, it was like a Larry Sanders type of show around Mark Maron doing this podcast. And that's all it was, right? I, I wasn't even writing at the time. And I spoke to Olivia, and she was very warm and welcoming. You know, you have a lot of managers out there, especially today. It's harder than ever. They're these gatekeepers that do not want an outside guy, especially like me, who also manages talent. Because mm -hmm. uh, she thought they, you might poach? She didn't, but most, they don't even give me the opportunity. Some do. You right. and I just had an experience where... Mm -hmm. I reached out to a manager of another piece of talent, and he was also very warm and right. open. Right. But a lot of the guys at the big places won't have that conversation. But she was cool, and then she set a meeting with herself and Mark and me in New York, and we worked on developing an idea for a good year with a writer-director um, that had a couple – of cool credits, but it never worked out. In in the sense that and you weren't happy with the script, you mean? I don't even know if it went to script. It 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 definitely went to some kind of outline. Mm -hmm. There was definitely something, but I don't know that there was a script. And then, oh, from the management company I had, I had a manager representing writers that had a client named Duncan Birmingham. Mm -hmm. and we decided to give him a shot at meeting with Mark and writing the original pilot script. And Duncan was basically a no one. He didn't even have any credits at that point, right? Duncan was a no one. Yeah. And the script came out, I thought, pretty great. Yeah. 
And and I had a deal with Fox Television Studios at the time and went to Fox and said, listen, this guy, Mark Maron, is blowing up. Mm-hmm. We have this really good script with a concept where we could bring in guest actors every week. I think we could produce this at a low budget every week. Here's what I want you to do. Mm-hmm. Instead of paying script money, because pilot script money, right, is right. a minimum of 75 grand. Okay. I said, give me $30,000 to go out and shoot something. That's it. That's, that's what you're investing. And for these companies, that's nothing. Hey, it's Michael Jammin. If you like my videos and you want me to email them to you for free, join my watch list. Every Friday, I send out my top three videos. These are for writers, actors, creative types. You can unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm not going to spam you. And it's absolutely free. Just go to michaeljammin.com slash watch list. Did Duncan get so Duncan didn't get any any script money, or did he get the difference? I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> I, I I honestly don't think Duncan got money at the time, but Duncan had a chance to get a move a uh, short film made. Like right. we kind of called it a short film. It, it was, it was like a presentation. Concept. It was kind of like I I seem to remember it was like maybe fifteen minutes or something. You shot of the of it was the at, original. It was at least fifteen minutes, which okay. which by the way, a, a full episode would be twenty one minutes. Right. So it, was right? Not it that wasn't much shorter. Yeah. <laughs> It wasn't that much shorter. Yeah. And uh, I had these guys from New York that did me a favor. They came out. I mean, we, we did this whole thing that looked like a television show mm-hmm. for 30 grand. And that's amazing. And so who is, who is getting paid? I mean, there's production costs. Like, I don't, I don't know how you do it for 30000 You rent a place, or did you get the place for free? <laughs> like, who, you, everyone, you must have just paid people on pizza. Because there's certain fixed I, costs that you have to pay the camera and stuff like that. I don't think we had to pay the camera. I think I got no. The guys flew out with their cameras. I got these guys in New York uh-huh. to, who were commercial, uh, oh, you know, filmmakers that wanted to get into scripted. Uh, had a line producer that wanted to get into scripted, and a lot of people did favors. And and you know, it's back to the resourceful thing, right? Right. It's going out and 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 uh, thinking outside the box. For sure. My favorite. My favorite quote of. Uh, there was a writer, Don Oldtimer. What the hell was his name? It'll come to me, but he, ah, you, you definitely know this guy. Okay. Well-known comedy writer. Right. But he, he said, his quote was, when they zig, we zag. Right. He never wanted to do it the way everyone else was doing it. And that's kind of my thing. It's like, I'm going to make stuff happen. Like, I'm going to make it happen. And we're going to go out and figure out how to shoot it. Do I know how? No. But we're gonna figure it out. I know that, and we, yeah, we did. that is unusual. Because usually, the, just so people were listening, you'd write the, someone would get paid to write the script. They'd read the script, and then they they pass on it. That's how it usually goes. But right. so you shot it thinking that it would help get it picked up, I, it, which is unusual too, because it doesn't necessarily help. But um, it did. It doesn't necessarily help usually because it's awful. You uh-huh. know, it it everyone thinks they're gonna go out and shoot a good one, including me. <laughs> But, uh, you know, we took out the tape. We did screenings. We went around to the networks. We had meetings. And off that tape, we got an order to series. And then we started meeting showrunners. Right. That's where we met you guys. Right. And we, and we had... reshot the pilot and rewrote the pilot. Right. Oh, did we rewrite the pilot? I, don't... I think so. Yeah. Um, so, did we, so, yeah, so you met with a bunch of – because I remember – I think we met with you years earlier. I'm pretty sure we did before Marin. And then you met with showrunners, and I remember meeting Mark. Seaver and I met Mark at at a uh, at a diner, and and a, I think yeah, I don't even think Olivia was there. So at a diner on Sunset Boulevard for breakfast, and Mark ordered steak and eggs. I was like, "Who has steak and eggs?" <laughs> <laughs> that should have been the sign. <laughs> and then yeah, and then we got and then we got that, that, and that was a great gig for us. I mean, that really was a, a good, really good four years. Um, but yeah, super low budget, but it was great experience. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. I, it was my first thing that I ever shot in Los Angeles. Um, it was it was hard to to leave New York for so long, but it was just something like thrilling about it. Yeah. Um, and we were really breaking new ground. I think, like we we really shot it for. 
a quarter of the budget of most shows. Mm-hmm. Um, through Mark and his podcasting, we were able to get the guests that actually did the podcast, and that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He called in. He called in favors, but it was a, uh, yeah, it was an interesting job. It was wonderful. The other, mm-hmm. the other thing we did was on that presentation was. We took a shot with a director that was not a television director. He was a, a filmmaker who won the Academy Award for Best Short Film, and it was Luke Matheny. That was, so Luke, and, right, so he, did the, he directed the pilot, right? Right, President. and that's how Luke got so involved. You know, we, we were loyal to everyone who was involved in the beginning because that was the promise, right? We're going to do this, we're going to get it picked up, mm-hmm. and when it does, this is your way into television. Yeah. And it was. He, and, uh, he directed a bunch of episodes. He was really good. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's doing really well right now. He and he's a really talented director. Yeah. And and then and you actually wound up directing some episodes, too, on Marin. I did. I did. Uh, I'm very grateful to you guys and to Mark for the opportunity to do that. You know, that's I was doing it. I was in. I started this business in my early 20s, and you're standing around the sets, and it, you start to learn the things. Right. You know, and you want to continue to evolve. Right. So it, it was different and scary, but it was cool. And then I went on to direct Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll I, and some I, of the Benter stuff. I remember when you were directing, you you bought a binder, <laughs> right? Especially yeah. by it zipped. And you go, you got to get a binder. So I went out and bought a binder. <laughs> for when we were tra- I got the same exact one. <laughs> you go, you I mean, I had a very specific way yeah. to direct. Uh and I know I came up with people who did that, right? So I learned from them, and mm-hmm. it was very helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a skill set that I still have and bring to the things I do now. Um, I am not currently in the pool to direct episodic television. Um, I think the next shot I'll have is probably something I create. Yeah, well, you know? and let's get talk about that, because you and your partner Tom created Benders. So how, you know, and that was your first time, I think your first real writing did you have writing much writing space? We had some episodic credits, uh-huh. uh huh. Shortly before that, and uh, yeah, we we I, I it came up through a phone call with one of the executives at IFC. I don't know if we wrote it on spec first or if we found an area that they liked and then they ordered the script. I think that's what happened. Right. I think we found an uh, an area that they liked, and that and, and uh, so that was you guys running, and you had a, you had a small writing room, right? Or no? We actually did that one also unorthodox, and we freelanced to uh, two or three writers. Uh-huh. So we would write outlines and ideas, and uh, and we would write some of the episodes, and they would write some of the episodes that we assigned to them. Well, that's interesting. Why did you want to do it that way? It's the same thing as the show that we did, Marin. Like, we just didn't have the money. Uh-huh. Writing staffs cost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you're not necessarily required to have a writing staff. <laughs> you are required to farm out right. episodes at least to a season. Right. Um, so we just did it the bare minimum. Right. And you have more experience on that than me. I've never worked on a writing staff. Uh, I don't know how... I know that in sitcom world, it's very effective and it's almost necessary. Right. I never found in the dramas I did that it was helpful and I felt it was inconsistent and that ultimately the the big showrunners that I worked with had to end up rewriting everything. That that happens if you don't have the right staff for sure. Yeah. Interesting. And then, Uh, and do you, uh, I mean, so what did you think of it? Did you like, I mean, did you like the whole writing, that whole process for you? Oh yeah. yeah, I loved it. Um, if you were going to do one, if you had to choose between writing, producing, directing, that's it. Which which would you want to put your energy into? It would not be directing. I could weed that out by right. process of elimination. Why is that? Um, it's stressful. People don't realize how stressful it is. But it's stressful, and to what end? In television, it's like you're really executing the creator's vision, right? And in television, the creator is the person, um, you know, whose vision it is. Right. So I, I would say it would be the writing, to be honest. I, but I also love the producing. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I, I really feel like it's all been a gift and um, many people only get so many shots. Like there's so many writers, there's so many producers that have had one show on television and never had anything again. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had a pretty decent career and I get those other shots coming up. I'll be very thankful for whatever they are. Right. So, you know, but yeah, I, I'm, I have, Tom and I have one series we're about to pitch, hopefully within three weeks. We're very excited. And it can't you know, be the dream is, it's a comedy. You know, the dream is that that gets sold and we get a chance to write the script. Right. And we get a chance to have health insurance. <laughs> That's a big deal. Wait, do, do you get, are you, you must be in the direct, you're in the producer's guild as well, right? I'm in the writer's guild, the director's guild, and the baker's guild. I am not in the, in the uh, producer's guild. The Why producer's not? guild has no benefits. It's oh, not really? the same. Really? They don't have benefits? Yeah. No, I think you get a discount on car rentals. Well, that's nice. There's nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I didn't know that. And um, so then, all right. So that's that's what's on on tap for you guys now. And so, but you still, uh, you know, do you still manage people at all, or what, or no? I do. I and manage a couple of people. Com- comedians. I can manage a. Yeah, it would always be comedians only. Um, I manage less people than I did. Um, I'm just putting my time and energy into the people I represent as well as the creative projects we have right. this other business that I started. But, you know, you you asked something earlier about produ- types of producers. Right. Right. And there's there are some it's 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 hard to define what a producer is because the truth is there's like 50 types of producer. Right. You have um at the basic level, you have a creative producer who might own a book or property or some intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Like that's always what I was and I am. And even even if it's not intellectual property per se, I went out, talked to Mark Marin and, and convinced him to do television, and we came up with an idea together that was at least the seed. That was the intellectual property. Right. And then in my role, I see it through from inception all the way to the end. And I'm also involved in the ad campaigns when the network has, you know, the pitch to what's going to be on the poster. They run it through the executive producers. Interesting. Okay. Um, right. So I'm I'm that kind of person, but I am never hired by anyone. I have to generate or I don't. Right. It's eat what you kill. Yeah. So I have to self-generate. I get a project like that going, I need a line producer who's only going to work on that project while it goes. And then why don't you, you know, tell everybody what a line producer does? Well, before that, one of the reasons, a line producer does the nuts and bolts of overseeing the way it's scheduled out to shoot, which all has to do with the money. Mm-hmm. Um, hires the crew. Mm-hmm. The crew answers to him or her and their team. Um and again, they work specifically on that show where I can have one project or five projects going at one time. Right. And then I would need five line producers to work. Right. And then under them, they have producers that work on just certain things. Right. Production managers. Right. Who really are the day in and day out of having the department heads report to them. Right. And then there's writing producers, which you could speak uh, better to than me, but... You know, on television, there's a million producers. Yeah. Most of those producers are writers. Right. You know, at some level on the staff. There's a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, the more seasoned you are, generally the, the higher credit you have based on precedent. Um, the more valuable you are or have made yourself, they need you. Um, and also associated with those production credits is the amount of money you make. You know, that's the other secret. It's like when you're looking at those credits, the people with the higher production credits are making more money than the people with lower production credits. Except on Marin. I, Everyone was equal. Yeah. <laughs> Marin, none, no one made a ton of money no on Marin. Money on right. Uh, which I think is ultimately why it ended earlier than it could have. Like, the show was performing the same. Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, Mark I didn't want to. He felt we took the the show as creatively as far as we could. I mean, and then I remember saying him, you know, he's like, "What do we do? We've done everything from our life." And I was like, "You know, Mark, we're writers. We can come up with stuff." And he comes looking. He was like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> and so <laughs> that's it. You know, he was surprised. It's interesting. I mean, that that is probably true. And that was a conversation you guys had. Mm -hmm. My conversation was more like. We reran these on Netflix and it got triple the amount mm -hmm. of of viewers, or not way more than triple actually. Like, why am I doing this show originally for this type of network yeah. right now? I think I'd be better off in my career to move on. That's how I saw it. There, there was that, and I and I always like I always disagreed on that. I was like, but the fact that we get paid less, the budget is lower, means we get to do what we want creatively, and I like that part. You know, I like to get it because they, IFC was a good partner. They really let us do, as long as we were on budget, they let us do what we wanted to do, which is not always I the case. I agree with that, but yeah. I agree with that. But, you know, he's done pretty well since yeah, he I left. Th <laughs> I think he, he probably <laughs> did okay, yeah. He made the right, you know, the right call. I think it's a personal decision for each person. Like, I, I would did, – did Mark think they were great partners? I don't know what his answer really would be. He yeah. didn't really have any context. Yeah. Right, right. I'm not sure if Mark thinks anyone's a great partner. Right. right. So, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, so, oh, the other producers are, are the people who leverage their way in. Um, what they have in, is the control of the talent. Right. There are certain management companies that are just famous for that. Mm -hmm. You know, there was, a, there was a, a wave in Hollywood where they were trying to cut it down, but they haven't cut that shit down. No. Right. No, is yeah. Agents were trying to get on that. As you know, that's basically what happened. They tried to get on it, and looks like that's over. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Interesting. Oh. And so, so oh, yeah, go on. Yeah, I didn't. No, I don't know. I don't know what you want to cover. No, but, uh... I, I, you know, I, I, we've talked about plenty, but uh, I don't know. What do you have? What advice would you have for someone who's trying to get in? Other, other. I mean, you kind of stated, you know, basically started as an assistant, but I, because I, I kind of said something the other day. Maybe I was talking out of my butt, but someone asked me, um, you know, how do I become a producer? I go, producer is one of the most creative jobs on set because, you know, basically a writer comes up with an idea and hands and says, can we make this happen? And the producer says either the, a good producer say, all right, I'll figure out a way to make it happen. I don't, you know, and then I don't want to know how, don't tell me how you're going to do it. Just make it happen. And so if you're asking, how do I become a producer? You're missing the point. You just do it. That's you. You you invent it. You find a writer to team up with. You find a project and you just make it happen, on whatever money you can come up with. If it's thirty thousand dollars, you could you could have done it for less. You could have done it on an iPhone if you had to. You know. Yeah, I I agree with you a hundred percent. And in some ways, I'm glad I kind of came up through uh, trying to generate independent film because that's exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it also depends on what kind of producer. When someone says, I have to, I want to become a producer, how do I become a producer? Do they really know all these types of producers there are? No. You know, and I, I'm, I'm living through this now, right? My, my son graduated school out in L.A., and he's working in the business. He doesn't really know for sure what he wants to do, and I didn't either. Right. So that's, I think that's, for me... I think it might be too narrow to say I want to be a producer. I think it's it's cool to be open-minded and say maybe I'll be a producer. Mm -hmm. But I think, for, to me, the best advice is get in the business and work really hard and become recognized and find mentors. Right. And find a path that may or may not be a producer. Like, if I didn't have all those steps that added up to where I am now... I probably would have had some other steps that added up to something, if that makes sense. But I probably wouldn't have been a producer. Oh, really? What well, about... I didn't know I wanted to be one, right? So, like, I got a job in music and worked hard enough to book a tour, which led me to people who wanted me to book comedians, which led me to comedians wanting me to represent them, which led me to comedians wanting me to shepherd their material. But what about developing for your the comedians that you work with now? I mean, what you know, or you know, yeah, creating shows. For yeah, but I have that. I have the, the, uh, the history and the experience to be able to do that. Right. 
Yeah. You know, that, that the other way to do it is the most common way to do it is is leverage your way in. Get a comedian, represent a comedian, work at a management company where the comedian's young and ultimately six, seven, ten years later become really important. Mm-hmm. Attach yourself to that person and you produce with them. Right. Right. And that's very um, common. That's, right. It's more common. But you're you're probably not gonna have the freedom to leave the office and actually produce. Oh, you think really? Uh huh. Well, I guess it depends how many clients they have and, and how my, you know, it's like you're saying, I would think they want you to protect them, you know, you know. Well, the problem with management is it's a 10% business. Right. So to make a real living, how much money is your, your guys or girls make? How much are they making? You know, and that's what the pressure is. Like these, these managers at these Brillstein Grays are, they have to have a book of business of two to five to $10 million. Right. Right. So they're in the office. Yeah. And then what, so what exactly, all right. So what would a manager, since you've known more about that, that area than I do, what, what exactly are they doing for their clients? These managers, they're putting pieces together. They are moving, they're taking stuff in, they're calling, they're reading the coverage and they're calling up somebody at a studio and saying, this script is amazing. They never read the script. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're selling it. They're selling shoes. Mm -hmm. They happen to be in the form of a script. And they're getting people, and they're putting people together. They're moving. They're having lunches. It's all the stuff I did, um, except they have a, a, you know, they're doing so much of it um, that they can't really do anything except put pieces together. Right. And they just hand it off to the next person, hand it off to the writer or whatever. Right. Yeah. So interesting. I mean, there there might be people listening to this that completely disagree with me. Um, and listen, there are, there are plenty of, Judd Apatow was a guy who could do everything, right? He's a writer. Uh, I mean, I wish I was Judd Apatow to be like, like he does it all. He really produces those movies. Mm-hmm. You know, he knows how to sell. He knows how to do everything, right? So there are those people, but they're, they're the exception. Yeah, I think so too, right? It's a little different because once you create that big hit, your next show is much easier to sell, you know? Oh, you know, yeah. Much easier. Um. So interesting. It's interesting to hear your point of view. Uh, like for me, I'm still, you, you know, like you could say, people could say about me whatever they want. Like I'm, I'm 54 years old. I've been doing this for a long time. I no longer run that production company, but I could still get in the door. Right. Everywhere. Right. So I have that shot. So now they don't, they don't buy as favors really. Mm-hmm. Um, Not anymore. Were they doing it in the beginning? It was easier for people right. to buy, you know, favors and take shots. But now they're really, uh, you know, are they programming it? Is it good? So we can at least get in the door and give it our shot. And we work really hard to present something that is worthy of being bought. And once it's bought, we're in the game, right? But do we, you think it's there's different a chance. now? Do you think it's a little different now on streamers selling your shows? Like, is you know, as, as opposed to networking cable? No. Not at all. It's just more competition. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more players. There's a lot more pressure to take pitches from a diverse group of people, whether or not everyone has experience, which I think is great. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot less money because there have been so many mergers, uh, and these companies have all kind of combined. They mm-hmm. don't spend the development money. Like the the rule used to be, they buy a hundred scripts in network television right. to make seven to eight pilots, to put everywhere from anywhere from two to eight pilots into production and four series on the air. Yeah, and two of them have already that, been canceled. I mean, but th- you're not you're not exaggerating. You know, that's exactly no, what it was. No, these are the real numbers. Right now, there's no way they buy more than thirty scripts. You're talking about um, networks or who? Are they big networks or who? Yeah. Well, anyone. I, there's no way FX is not buying. I mean, well, but I, but I'm, I'm thinking. I'd like be surprised. CBS, you know, I don't think CBS is buying more than thirty scripts. Yeah, I think you're right. It's very hard. Yeah. So, yeah. everyone's like, "Oh, there's so many places to you know to sell to." There's 350 million people in this country. There's 300 directors that make a full-time living directing television. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. That's why, I, you know, this whole thing about being open-minded and just doing the best job you can and figure out the path as you go, I think is very important because the odds are against anybody at any age 
Um, unless you're a naturally gifted singer at six years old saying, this is what I want to do. Your life is probably going to change and take a turn. You're going to end up doing something else. And that's okay. Right. And it could be better than you ever imagined. You know? Are you, are you talking about in or out of the business? You mean? It doesn't matter. I mean, I, I think if you want to get into the business, I think that's perfectly, that's that's what you're saying. I want to get in show business. I want to get in television. Right. I don't necessarily think, you know, I know that the people listening to this are writers. And they want to write. And, and the great also, thing about writing, yeah. you know, you could always write just like I did. Mm -hmm. I wrote on the side while I was running the production company. And yeah, I was in a position, but I had to overcome like the, uh, not step over that line because, because people didn't want to look at us as writers. Right. We weren't like people who we represented didn't want us to succeed as writers. It, well, they didn't want to help you because it was an easier no. it was an easier hill to to climb as a producer because that's where people know you. You know, right? Yeah, right. I'm talking about agents and talent. Well, this has been a very, very illuminating discussion. <laughs> very sober, but okay. I want to thank you. Let me say one thing Please. to the writers. Yes. Yeah. Let me say, you know, you got to write. You got to write every day. You got to read every day. I've had the benefit of being able to read scripts for 30 years, which mm -hmm. helped me become a better writer. Am I the best writer? No. Um, there, There is another path that I haven't talked about as much, and I'm sure you probably can, mm -hmm. better at another time with your listeners. Like, if you go to school or you write at an early age or whatever age, you could get in as a writer. And your, your writing just has to be so exceptional, and you have to understand that no one cares about your ideas because they all have ideas. So you need something that they can't get, um, which may be getting the rights to some really important article or interesting article. So even if your script is a B and not an A, the concept is so great that's sellable. The property. And if someone's going to rewrite it, mm -hmm. great. And that's you know, take the credit. You're saying something like that, which I say over and over again, right? I mean, and so when you're reading scripts, how like how many pages in before you give up on it? Not many. Yeah, I hate reading scripts. Right. They're so bad. It's just so bad, right? And you're reading scripts from these are professional caliber. At least scripts that came from agents and managers. They've already been vetted to some degree, right? Absolutely. Right. So, and even then, if they're not hooking you, you're just going to toss it, and so. Hundred percent. Yeah, and so many people. Think but there's nothing better. There's nothing better than sitting down with a script that that hooks you, and you'll, you re, you actually read it. And you know what? People are gonna give me shit, yo. You don't read the thing. You know, I spent so much time. No, I've got fucking one hundred scripts a weekend to read. I'm not gonna fucking read them all. But this is exactly what I say, and I also say if you're watching a TV show, you're gonna say, well, it's gonna get good around the forty minute rock. No, I'll just click. I'll find something else. I mean, they're the the viewers the same way. Like there's too much choices. Right. I don't have to suffer through it. And if it's going to get good on page, you know, 50, well, it should have been good on page two. Sorry. Yeah. But if I, I could like from, and it's also personal. If I love the script, even if it's hard to sell, I'm going to try to sell it. Right. You know, like I'm okay if not everyone's going to love it, mm -hmm. you know, as long as it fits something that I would watch. Cause that's the other thing I've always done. Would I watch it? Right. I'm not just trying to develop something I could sell. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. That's so funny. Why are you laughing? Because I say all this, and sometimes I think, and people, sometimes people are like, man, this guy's spitting truth. And it's like, yeah, but I'm not making it up. It's just like, this is what, this is how it is. It's like, I, I think there's a misunderstanding of the reality of what he, what show business is like. It's like, you know, uh, and it's, it's I, a hard business, man. I'll, I'll end it with that. Mm -hmm. um, it's cutthroat. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to, you could go get a show. Maybe you could make a script deal. Hmm. Can you make a 40-year career out of it? I don't know. It's getting harder. It's getting harder for sure. <laughs> it's getting harder. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> On that note, Jim Serpico, thank you so much for doing this. Is, uh, this is a great talk. I knew it would be, but I want to remind everybody, go check out your podcast, Bread for the People. It's on every podcast yeah, platform, I right? The Steve, yeah, every podcast platform. The Steve LeBlanc episode relates to television and data and testing, and it's pretty interesting. 
Yeah. I think people get a kick out of it. Is there social media people should be following you too or what? Yeah. Uh, on Facebook, we are bred f- the number four people, bred for the people pod mm-hmm. on Facebook. And then on Instagram, um, at Jim Serpico. Go follow this guy. This guy's spitting truth. Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much for, for doing this. This was a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much. Until next week. Hey, it's Michael. One more thing. Come see me perform. I'm going to be in Boston area, actually Amesbury, Massachusetts, on November 12th and 13th uh, at the Actor Studio performing my show, A Paper Orchestra. Uh, and then I'm going to be back in Los Angeles on December 10th and 11th, again, at the Moving Arts Theater Company. So tickets are on sale. Go get them at michaeljammon.com slash live. It's a small, intimate venue. I'm going to be performing from my collection of personal essays, and each one's going to be followed by like a 20-minute Q&A. We get to talk about the work. It's a fun event. So I hope to see you there. Go get them. Tickets, again, are at michaeljammon.com slash live. And, of course, sign up to my weekly newsletter. That's called The Watchlist at michaeljammon.com slash watchlist. This has been an episode of Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jamin and Phil Hudson. If you'd like to support this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing this podcast with someone who needs to hear today's subject. For free daily screenwriting tips, follow Michael on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Michael Jamin Writer. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Phil A. Hudson. This episode was produced by Phil Hudson and edited by Dallas Crane. Until next time, keep writing.